Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant, and I'm doing this episode solo while my co-host, Vivi, also known as Sugi, Ganeshanathan, finishes up the edits on her new novel. The audio in this episode is from a live event that I did with the biographers Steve Hall and Henry Schwey at the Unbound Book Festival in April. As you may or may not know, this that book festival is held in Columbia, Missouri, midway between St. Louis and Kansas City. Steve and Henry have written books about two great writers, Evan S. Canal and Tennessee Williams, associated with both of those cities. As a writer who lives in Missouri and loves both of these authors, I thought it was really interesting to have a conversation that compared the writing lives of Williams and Canal, because they're two writers who don't frequently get compared. Cannell was born in Kansas City, was straight, wrote about upper-middle-class life, most famously in his novels Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Williams moved to St. Louis from Mississippi when he was young, was queer, came through the more, uh, came from a more rough-and-tumble background, though not exactly working class, as we'll talk about in the discussion. And his play The Glass Menagerie, though set in St. Louis, seems to exist in a very different world from the world of Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. And yet... There are a tremendous number of fascinating parallels between the lives of these two writers, including their relationships with their mothers um, and their, I don't know, resistance, hatred of um, pushing against the sort of strict sexual mores of of the cities that they live in, the sort of repressive cultures that they felt like were represented by St. Louis and Kansas City. Thanks to the work of Steve Paul and Henry Schwey, we get to explore them these differences and similarities in this talk, and I, which I hope you'll enjoy. I'm not going to introduce Stephen Henry here because I do that in the live audio, but I'm going to mention, because I forgot to do so at the time, that Steve is the winner of the Society of Midland Authors Award for Best Biography of 2021. I really encourage you to check out uh, the work of both of these writers. They did such a fantastic job uh, writing about two really important American writers, and I hope you enjoy this discussion. Yeah, I'm, I'm Whitney Terrell. I'm a novelist, and I live in Kansas City and teach at UMKC in our MFA program. Um, and so I feel, as a Missouri resident, I feel this panel represents a sort of I-70 series of writers, <laughs> with Columbia acting as neutral territory, representing St. Louis. We've got, uh, and Henry, I have no idea how to say your last name. I've only read it. Chevet. 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 
All right, yes. it, representing St. Louis, we've got Henry Chevet, a professor of drama and comparative literature at Washington University. He's the author of three books, including his most recent book, which we'll be focusing on today, Blue Song, St. Louis in the Life and Work of Tennessee Williams. And representing Kansas City, we have Steve Paul, a longtime writer and editor at the Kansas City Star and the author of multiple books, including the one we're going to talk about today, Literary Alchemist, The Writing Life of Evan S. Cannell. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Witt. Thank you all for being here. It was really interesting for me to think and read, to read and think about these books next to each other. Mm. Tennessee Williams lived in St. Louis from 1918 to 1938. Cannell was born in 1924, and in his novels, Mrs. Bridge and Mr. Bridge wrote about Kansas City in the 1930s. There are plenty of differences between the writers, but one similarity seems to have been that they both really did not like the cities that they <laughs> lived in. <laughs> Uh, and they were in a big hurry to leave all of us Missourians behind. Yeah. Why? What is so terrible about us? <laughs> Let's start with Henry. Well, um, there are plenty of reasons why, but before I, I mention about the reasons why Tennessee Williams hated St. Louis, and in fact called it St. Pollution, was the fact um, that it left its imprint on him very distinctly. And that's the, that really was the purpose of my book. Um, Williams made it very clear that he wanted no part of St. Louis, but as with many things like this, um, the city was not done with him. And uh, the book keeps reinforcing the fact that the images of St. Louis, notably his parents and his sister, resurface throughout his work. And in some ways it's a kind of compulsion. So in terms of Whitney's question about what he didn't like, um, just some brief points that probably need to be uh, stated. Williams was born in 1911 in Mississippi, um, in Columbia, Mississippi, and the family, uh, those early years were spent in Clarksdale, Mississippi, um, which he idealized throughout his life. Uh, so he saw himself as a Southern writer rather than a Midwesterner. And when they moved to St. Louis, it was in 1918, they moved from the tiny town of Clarksdale to uh, the big city. And uh, it was a shock, absolute shock. They came in July of 1918, and the reasons that they moved here um, are important in terms of William's biography because his father uh, obtained a position as a as manager at International Shoe Company. And so the, the family was in some ways cast out of Eden. Uh, they had been living in uh, the rectory of his grandfather's home where both Tom and his sister Rose were sort of spoiled, pampered children of the rector. And they moved to a big city in which nobody knew them and they knew nobody. But most importantly, they were thrust upon their own resources as a nuclear family. There were no grandparents present to sort of um, assuage the tensions that lay in the household. Uh, the father 
Cornelius Williams had been on the road most of the time during the Mississippi years. And when they came to St. Louis, he was stay, he stayed at home uh, and that was for the worse. And so the familial tensions were almost unbearable throughout the time in St. Louis. And of course, Williams um, was picked on uh, as a Southern child because of his ac accent, accent and somewhat effeminate mannerisms. Um, he was ridiculed by his own father as Miss Nancy at home. And uh, so in his primary school particularly, he didn't find it easy. And the other important reason why he hated it here, I think was that his mother basically told him to hate it. His mother was a kind of Southern belle, although she was born in Ohio, uh, but she re also reinforced the image that St. Louisans were smug and snobbish. And that lesson was taught from a very early age to both her young children. And so you find in a lot of what Williams wrote about St. Louis, almost a kind of echo chamber of what his mother had told him. So that in short tells you uh, about the prejudice that he felt uh, in St. Louis. Uh, that's probably enough to, to to start the ball rolling. Thank you, Henry. In the competition of who disliked their own town more, mm -hmm. where do you think Evan <laughs> S. Cannell uh, falls? Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, Evan Cannell had a had a complicated relationship with Kansas City, but not nearly as uh, polluted a relationship as. Uh, Henry writes about uh, Williams in, in St. Louis. Uh, Cannell uh, grew up in a, was born in Kansas City. His father was a, a prominent doctor. Um, he had a very comfortable uh, childhood, even in the Depression years when, when the family didn't seem to suffer. You know, it was upper middle class existence. Uh, he was pampered, uh, but he was also, if anyone who has read Mrs. Bridge or, or Mr. Bridge, the, the two novels that kind of encapsulate that time period and, and, and families somewhat like his own, not, not entirely. Uh, he borrowed a lot from friends and other people, but um, it, it, the family was emotionally bereft. Um, his, the, the, his parents, you know, hardly ever expressed love. His father worked uh, day and night and didn't see his children all that often. Um, but, you know, Cannell kind of came out of Kansas City uh, relatively unscathed. Uh, where it gets complicated is uh, World War, uh, he graduates just on the verge of World War II. Uh, he goes off to Dartmouth uh, with the thought that he would follow his uh, father uh, in the medical profession, although that's what his father thought. Uh, I don't think Cannell ever uh, thought he was going to do that. And in fact, when he, when he flunked chemistry, it probably was, uh, and, and spent too much time uh, playing pinball at the local uh, uh, pub in Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, he pretty much had figured out he was not going to become a doctor. Um, but he did uh, enter the Navy, uh, became a, a pilot trainee, uh, and, then, uh, and then a pilot trainer. Uh, never left the country during the war, spent three years in the Naval Air Corps. Uh, came back to Kansas City after that, 
It was a little surprising. He'd been exposed to New Orleans and Florida and Albuquerque, and so he was tempted by, uh, by some of these places. Uh, but he uh, wanted to finish his college uh, degree, and he went to the university. Of, I'm sorry, you might have heard of this school in Lawrence, Kansas. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, he went to KU. He's a Jayhawk. Uh, he spent a, about a year and a half there. Uh, fascinating uh, period in, in kind of in my research when I discovered uh, he contributed to a campus humor magazine and, uh, and drew sketches, uh, many of which were of scantily clad women. Um, but uh, anyway, he, but he couldn't wait to get out of there. Uh, on the GI Bill, he ended up doing uh, grad school uh, first uh, with Wallace Stegner at Stanford and then uh, Columbia. But one of the things that, that comes clear, and, and Cannell kind of returned from time to time for family events, the death of his mother, um, for the making of the movies, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, which was kind of a nostalgic period for him. But he famously said in the early 70s, after living in um, San Francisco for about 15, San Francisco and then Sausalito, um, and then uh, Santa Fe for the last 20 years of his life, um, he never um, felt himself a Westerner after all that, and, and confessed at some point that really he, he was a Midwesterner or through and through. But what he famously said in the early 70s uh, when he, he was back in Kansas City scouting a possible movie project, and uh, he said, you know, I'm in, in San Francisco, I can go to a party and meet all sorts of different people. When I'm back in Kansas City or in Kansas City, I go to a party in Mission Hills, which is the swanky suburb on the Kansas side of, uh, of Kansas City. Uh, I, I go to a party in, in Mission Hills, and I only meet Mission Hills people. He was very conscious of the race uh, issue in Kansas City, racial conflict. And as, as I've written in this book and, and elsewhere, uh, race becomes a really interesting thread in his connection to Kansas City um, and, and something that he was kind of repulsed by, by the, you know, his father's generation's attitudes towards race. So I'll leave it at that for now. Well, both of you have said, you know, that, that even though they, they had issues with their hometowns, that their, their work was deeply influenced by the towns that they lived in. Mm -hmm. One of the things that makes a home city so resonant, of course, is your family is there, mm -hmm. right, for better or for worse. For bit, yeah. um, and in this case, both of these writers had remarkable family situations that appeared in their writing, and in particular, they had famous characters that they based on their mothers. Um, you know, so I would really like to have a discussion here talking about Tennessee Williams' mother, um, Edwina Dakin Williams, I think if that's pronounced right, to Evan S. Cannell's mother, Elton Cannell, who was more difficult. <laughs> mm. We're going to start with Edwina, and to do that, I'd like to ask uh, Steve, uh, I'm sorry, we're going to start with Elton, and I'm going to, to do that, we're going to ask Steve to read a short passage oh. from his book about her, which I, did I tell you what it is? Or no, I, you haven't told me. I, I, I told, that's, I'm totally... It's uh, a big surprise. Yep, yeah. Um, so here you go. This is the first curveball. Right there. Oh, okay. You can just read the bracket, and then there's another bracket on the next okay, page. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. As for his mother, Cannell said he had no idea what she cared about. Maybe Nelson Eddy. She went through the motions of cooking and gardening, but without much passion. Quote, I do know that she felt threatened by allusions to sex, he wrote. 
I believe she was concerned mostly that nothing outrageous should happen, and I suspect that anything passionate, no matter how abstract, made her uncomfortable, close quote. In that passage alone, one can find a roadmap to the consciousness of India Bridge. The repulsion of sex, outrageousness, passion, all become touchstones of Cannell's fictional mother figure. And then can you read just, oh, just oh, a little more? Oh, and then that, that part. Okay, okay gotcha. Yeah. All right. Cannell, slender, athletic, and extremely attractive from high school onward, would date girls from Sunset Hill, the high society private school my mom near, uh, near the country club <laughs> plaza. In 1939, the Cannell family moved from their Brookside Colonial to a six-column brick mansion on Drury Lane, about a mile and a half away, in the unincorporated Kansas district of Mission Hills. The locale gave him and his family an added air of stable prosperity, though being that much farther from his high school friends and old neighborhood irritated him. Nevertheless, Cannell tended to resist the trappings of moneyed Kansas City. While imagining a persona in Mrs. Bridge, Cannell sets up an awkward confrontation when Douglas's mother, Douglas is the, uh, the son uh, in the Bridge novels, when Douglas's mother finds him on the plaza one day with the wildest looking girl in the world, that's a quote. The young woman named Paquita happened to be Latina. On another occasion, after earning his driver's license, Douglas rams a car while being distracted by a, quote, a singularly voluptuous car hop. <laughs> Such anxiety over the sexual stirrings of her son causes Mrs. Bridge to come to a brutal understanding, quote, she had lost his love. She knew not why, as she, as she had forfeited that of Ruth, the fictional sister, and the thought of losing her son entirely was more than she could endure, close quote. At another moment, quote, she perceived a change in Douglas's attitude toward her. He was more withdrawn, close quote. Cannell's bonds to his own mother would prove fragile, yet here one could project that the emotional tug of war between Douglas Bridge and his mother had some solid grounding in the author's biography. All right, so now we're going to listen to, uh, I'm going to read from Henry's book about uh, Tennessee Williams' mother. Born in Ohio, Edwina Dakin was a lively, intelligent, and beautiful girl, and she grew into one of the most eligible debutantes in Columbus, Mississippi. She quickly took on the privileged status of a Southern belle, and it was a role she not only accepted and learned with alacrity, but continued to perform for the rest of her life. Indeed, she modeled it so well that her son was able to use her speech and mannerisms to depict the Southern belle par excellence, Amanda Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie, a role her mo his mother never acknowledged, even as, as even remotely resembling herself. Another similarity between mm. the mothers. Uh, in her memoir, Remember Me to Tom, Edwina describes her first meeting with Lorette Taylor, the legendary actress who created Amanda, first in Chicago, then later on Broadway. This is a quote from the memoir by the mother. I entered Lorette's dressing room not knowing what to expect, for she was sometimes quite eccentric. Before I had a chance to get a word out, she greeted me. Well, how did you like yourself, Ms. Williams, she asked. I was so shocked. I didn't know what to say. It had not occurred to me as I watched Tom's play that I was Amanda. Her vehement protests to the contrary, it is obvious that not only that, um, that Edwina was a prototype for Amanda Wingfield, but her habit of relentless conversation was something that even Tom's friends were aware of. 
One of William's closest friends at Washington University was Clark Mills McBurney, who had already, who had already published under the name Clark Mills by then. And in recalling, a visit, and in recalling to a, a visit to their home, Mills observed, this is a quote from Mills, Ms. Williams never stopped talking. It was a nightmare, just yammer, 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 to the point where you were ready to go through the ceiling. From the distance, it had its comical aspect, but up close, watch out. It was absolutely destructive. Ms. Williams, as a social figure, had an element of lunacy about it that had no connection with reality except in a grotesque way. All that talk about her elegant past and their southern gentility, I couldn't find any redeeming quality in her at all. To me, the word nightmare is strictly applicable because she was a nightmare. <laughs> so Henry, can you talk to us a little bit about Edwina's nightmarishness? Well, I think that, you know, the, these, thank you very much for, for quoting the book. And by the way, let me interrupt myself. Can you hear me all right? Because yeah, I didn't I ask hear you before. Great. Okay, good. Okay. So one of the things that the juxtaposition of these two uh, excerpts indicates is how similarly affected both writers were by this dominant presence, uh, dominant in different ways. But for the when when uh, Steve talked about the puritanical attitudes towards sex, I think that this is certainly resonates for Williams. Um, and Dakin Williams, Tennessee's brother, said that she was absolutely, she found touch of any kind absolutely abhorrent in the house. There was no touch, no connection physically. And I think that, you know, we think of Williams as a somewhat... Um, highly sexualized person, especially in his in his middle aged and later life. Um, and I think that this was very much a reaction to his mother and toward the puritanical uh, quality of his upbringing. Um, and it was also in some ways a kind of emulation uh, of his father, who was uh, sexually very active outside the marriage and a heavy drinker and and card player. But your question really is about Edwina. And I think Edwina had an enormous impact on Tom throughout his whole life. I mean, at the end of his life, he sort of sort of articulated under uh, having had psychoanalysis, he kind of articulated his dislike and he called her a little Prussian general in drag at one point, rather rather nasty comment. But I think his mother represented something that he felt he could not escape or was almost unable to escape. Um, the compulsive talking um, that Clark Mills describes that you aptly quoted um, is certainly something one sees in Amanda and in other characters in, in Williams, but particularly uh, in Amanda Wingfield. And you can see that it had uh, both a deleterious effect, quite obviously, but also a kind of creative effect in another way. I mean, he was very, Tom was very much her son in terms of storytelling and uh, delighting, if you like, in, in odd features of uh, characters. So it, it cuts both ways, but certainly she was responsible for that uh, that kind of response to the to uh, the lack of touch, Williams himself, what, despite what we know of him later, was extremely austere and very shy his entire life, and 
and really did not have any kind of sexual experience uh, to mention until he left St. Louis. And so St. Louis was in some ways associated with that maternal, maternal presence. Um, it's also interesting, this is perhaps another point to go after in the, in the discussion, but um, how both writers responded to the depression. And uh, Steve mentioned about Cannell's uh, upper middle class upbringing and Williams, uh, despite appearances in Glass Menagerie where it's very much a tenement dwelling, was not nearly as poor as one might believe just reading Glass Menagerie. So they, they had, uh, you remember I said that his father was a manager at International Zoo. So they were not by no means poor. So that's another interesting thing about how they, they both survived during the depression. But as far as uh, Edwina is concerned, she had a titanic influence upon, upon Williams. There was a, it seems to be like, both writers recognized a sadness in their mother, like that there was something tragic about their lives, that that was hard for them to live with when they were young, but later when they went back to reflect on it in writing, the sadness of Mrs. Bridge's life is crucial to that novel, that ending image of Mrs. Bridge where she is stuck in the automatic uh, garage door yeah. and it's snowing and she's saying softly help and she can't open the doors is what he was you know, the image that summarizes her life, I think. When uh, I was uh, stunned uh, when speaking um, during, you know, the research for this book, uh, speaking with Anne Lamott, who you might know as a writer, who was a friend of Cannell's. Uh, Cannell and her father, Kenneth, uh, co-edited a literary journal in San Francisco called Contact in the early 60s. And so uh, Annie knew uh, Cannell uh, from a young age, she was, you know, she was four or five or six years old when Cannell would come over to the house for dinner. But uh, she told me that not just the sadness, it's the loneliness. Uh, she told me that uh, Mrs. Bridge's loneliness was Evan Cannell's loneliness. Um, there's a moment um, in. Uh, I've never heard you say that. That's really, interesting. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, it's so right, he was right a lonely there guy. He in never... the preface of. Okay, the... <laughs> I miss. I just never thought yeah. about his loneliness being the same as yeah, hers. The, yeah, okay. no, it's, it's it's very interesting. And so there's a moment, um, and I mentioned her death in 1958. Uh, Cannell has pretty much written and finished uh, writing uh, Mrs. Bridge. It's about to be published in a few months. Uh, it actually, excerpts are being published in uh, the first issue of Contact magazine in Sausalito, uh, 1958. I'm sure that she never saw anything, uh, even uh, the excerpts from the future novel that were published in the Paris Review in 1955. Uh, July, of 19, uh, July of 1958, uh, Cannell writes a letter to uh, his friend Max Steele who was uh, another writer. Uh, he met Max in Paris uh, when Cannell went there in 1952. Max was reading manuscripts for the Paris Review. He was known for one award-winning novel called Debbie, um, later taught at the University of North Carolina. Um, there was a letter from Cannell to Max uh, that month Cannell had just returned to San Francisco from Kansas City. Uh, his mother, who had had cancer for several years in the 50s, uh, she had just died. And uh, he tells 
Cannell starts a letter by saying, I'm just back from Kansas City where my mother has died after a long uh, illness. There's nothing more to be said, period, ended. Uh, he never talked about his mother. Uh, even when, he, when, when asked about Mrs. Bridge, he never really, he always sort of alluded these questions about your mother and India Bridge. I think it's incredibly poignant that this book that was so much you know, about his mother, about other mothers, about you know, uh, a womanhood in that period, uh, that he, he, he was very reticent and reluctant to kind of make that connection or, have, or to have people even know about his own life. So, um, you know, he had a sister. Uh, she certainly confirmed some details of the book, and, uh, but, but he almost never spoke about his mother uh, after that. Uh, occasionally, you know, his father died oh, another 15 years later, had remarried, didn't have a great relationship with his father. They were not close. Um, and um, it, it, it's just a, a, a gap. It's just this huge gap in, uh, in kind of family, in, in the web of family and his own identity that was really hard to penetrate and really hard to, uh, you know, to get at least my arms around and anyone else's. As other people told me, uh, Cannell put an emotional wall around himself. And like Williams, he was shy, and uh, some people thought he was mute because he'd been being so he was socially awkward at times, and and uh, he just didn't connect with people on an emotional level. Even someone like Annie Lamott, who was a a, a good friend, and you know he had this close circle of friends who were big personalities, and I think he liked to be surrounded by these big, boisterous personalities where he didn't have to do a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, speaking as a fiction writer, it seems, it's easy for me to understand, yeah. you know, yeah. like you take things that you don't yeah. want to talk about or are emotionally sensitive <laughs> that you are afraid to address in reality, and you address them in fiction. There you uh, go. Yeah. I think both Tennessee Williams and, and um, M.S. Kennell did that with these characters. Um, both of them are also, both these writers are also highly identified by early, extremely successful pieces of work that sort of vaulted them into the national limelight. Um, and a lot of people imagine that they entered fully formed at the moment at which, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Miss, Mrs. Bridge was published or at the moment at which the Glass Menagerie came out, you know. But the truth is, in both uh, Henry and Steve's books, show that there's a lot of work leading up to those pieces, that they didn't just, you know, come out naturally. Um, and so I wanted... Both of you to talk about because I think the books do a good job of alluding to and thinking about, and because a lot of, you know, uh, the pre precursor material for these works is associated with St. Louis or Kansas City, mm -hmm. ret respectively. Um, and maybe we'll start with Henry about talking about earlier P Tennessee Williams' earlier work, like *The Pretty Trap* and *The Gentleman Caller*, that feel like antecedents to *The Glass Menagerie*. Could you talk a little bit about that period of his life in St. Louis? He was in *The Mummers*. He's, you know, beginning to write the things that are going to lead to the glass menagerie. Yes. Do you mind if I just respond briefly to what Steve just was saying in sure. terms of the? I don't want. I don't want to get off. You guys track, can talk but... over and interrupt. That's uh, that's fine with me. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to say that idea of inner loneliness of of the mothers is very interesting because. Edwina, in some ways, was overcompensating through this garrulousness, to to the the lack of uh, of a real a relationship with her husband, and 
Williams in some ways was defined by that social awkwardness. And when Steve was talking about um, Connell's quietness, I, I think that Williams was very difficult. There was a profile written by, uh, by a student uh, at the Columbia um, newspaper, Columbia, uh, uh, Univ uh, the University of Missouri, uh, Missouri Press, not press, I'm sorry, University newspaper uh, profiling Williams as pathologically shy. But he also had this very strange and highly inappropriate laugh that it would somehow sometimes emerge from him made people extremely uncomfortable, especially in when it happened in the theater or in rehearsals. Uh, so there's a connection there between the repression of the mother upon the son, but also the repressed loneliness of the mothers themselves. Um, and in some mothers, ways, this connects. You know, if you want to help the... your kids be writers, just <laughs> withdraw affection. <laughs> Don't speak with them. <laughs> Try not to touch them. Okay. Sorry, Henry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, so about the early work, Williams was um, defined by the sort of pre-glass menagerie work. Um, he was had his first apprenticeship with a group called the Mummers which most people haven't heard about, but it was a community theater group in, in St. Louis that actually his mother connected him with. Uh, it was run by a, a director, a very charismatic director named Willard Holland, and they produced William's first plays. And basically in, a, uh, in an essay that Williams wrote called Something Wild, Williams attributes, and this was written after he had left St. Louis in the, in the 40s, uh, he attributes his development as a writer to the mummers and to the kind of aesthetic that he encountered. And it was surprisingly enough for people who know Williams through Glass Menagerie or Streetcar, um, highly politicized. It was certainly socially uh, uh, controversial. They t uh, his first produced play for the Mummers was about a coal mining strike in the Red Hills of Alabama. Um, and so he was, he was writing socially committed plays for this, uh, for this company. And it really, they were large cast plays. And as I said, directed by Willard Holland, who also took leading roles. And so it's clear, it's clear that this experience um, tapped into William's skills and helped him to develop as a writer. So these are very, very important points. And also I didn't mention, although Steve did, uh, in terms of, of Connell's upbringing, the fact that Williams started out at University of Missouri in Columbia and was a student there from 1929 to 1932, and his father, when he found out that Tom uh, had failed ROTC, summarily took him out of school and put him to work at the shoe company, at International Shoe. So his quasi-normal upbringing there, or at least normal as a student, he even joined a fraternity, was on the wrestling team of the fraternity. Um, was hijacked, if you like, uh, but he started out 
as a, as a quasi-normal student at the University of Missouri in Columbia from 1929 until 1932. So that's also part of this sort of early period. The period at the Mummers um, was later in the mid-1930s, but all of this was before the Glass Menagerie emerged in 1944 in Chicago and then on Broadway. And to the popular imagination, it was that period, the Glass Menagerie, that suddenly allowed him to quote unquote step onto the to the Broadway stage as a national figure. But he had written all of these plays and not only plays, but poetry and stories prior to uh, the Glass Menagerie. And much of it is set in and around St. Louis. Do you remember when we started the show five years ago? I think that like one of the first things that I felt really awkward about was, I mean, who likes to listen to themselves talk? And I was like, how is my voice going to sound on air? Like, oh, God. And I th- there was that dreaded first take tape that we did. Yeah. Long <laughs> since deleted. We buried in the backyard. Long since deleted. And I think, you know, with our background as as writers, like the, the importance of the written word is really obvious. But I think I started to really pay attention more to like how I was talking. And, you know, you gave me some great tips, but when it came to getting our voices kind of uh, show ready, I really wish I had had a real expert like the people at Such a Voice. Yeah, and I am no expert on, you know, how to do anything, uh, you know, in terms of the, the way your voice sounds on, on, on a recording for a podcast. Fortunately, you know, Such a Voice has people who are experts within that industry um, and can give you lessons on how to do all kinds of different voices, how to do audiobooks, how to do commercials, how to do animation. Um, I mean, it's just that there's so many options within that world, things that you can learn how to do at your house, sitting in your office, doing what I'm doing right now. Um, but you'll be a real voice, a real world voice actor, and you can figure out how the industry works. Yeah. And, you know, um, I did um, some lessons with such a voice and it was so fun it was so fun i think that well we had the we, same guy can we say his, his name, name? Was it was tim, tim powers, powers. he was awesome it. he was awesome <laughs> he was so fun and like also it just was really clear um like it's very clear like what i should do to be better at this and um and he had such a range of experience it was kind of incredible to listen to all of the stuff that he had done kind of in this field and he was just really fun the most interesting thing that he said that i had never thought of was that you know, he had me read a script the first time and then think about an emotional incident that happened right before it that was extremely personal to me. And he was saying, like, reading the words is not, you need to not pay attention to the words. You need to pay attention to the emotion behind the words. And, like, you could read the phone book, but with emotion, and that will connect with readers. And I just thought that was a fascinating insight. And he taught me how to do it. Yeah, I felt like at the end of it, um, I was better. I was just better at it. And... um was going to have things that I could remember so that I wouldn't like, sometimes I learn something and it kind of like falls out of my brain because the pandemic has been rough and my mind is a sieve, but he like gave it to me in these kind of like clear steps and, and just like clear things to remember and hold on to so that the next time I am doing this, I can keep that with me. And we both teach writers and we want you, we know, I always tell advise writers who are applying to MFA programs, make sure that the people who are teaching you are publishing you know, and Tim is a working voice actor who, you know, has been working for Disney, who's worked for Netflix. The people who are at this company really know what they're talking about. They're involved in the industry. And I think that that is crucial. 
So if you've been looking for a way to get into the voiceover industry, visit suchavoice.com FNF and receive a complimentary copy of Such A Voice's Must Knows of Voiceover. And if you do this, you get access to advice from professional voiceover artists in the industry to help you out. And again, these are people who are out there doing it every day, the audiobooks, narration, animation, um, working actors. And um, you just go to suchavoice.com slash FNF today, and you can see if a career in voiceover is right for you. And again, I just want to emphasize, this was super fun. Uh, I've read Tennessee Williams collected stories. I remember reading them in college many, many years ago, but they're really interesting in terms of like trying to, you know, look at his early life. I think you get a lot out of those. If you, if you have, if you haven't read that book, I would advise getting it. Steve, could you talk about Connell's early work? Stuff like an anatomy lesson and mm -hmm. the Patriot, which is also like, was, I mean, some of Tennessee Williams stuff was very similar to Glass Menagerie, but as Henry's pointing out, he also wrote plays that had nothing to do with that material at all. Uh, the wide range that uh, of stuff that Canal was writing about was also pretty interesting. Yeah, Canal had some early, some some good early success uh, as a uh, writer of short fiction. Uh, he published his first story in 1946 after the war. Uh, got paid $35 for it. Um, out, out, coming out of Stanford and Wallace Stegner, he'd been sending his stuff around. He won some awards for an early story. He won an O. Henry Award uh, a couple of times, very early on, 1949, 1951. Um, then he starts, um, he, uh, he starts working on novels. Uh, there was a book called The Anatomy Lesson, which was going to be a novel largely based on his Kansas experience, not so much Kansas City. Isn't that City. about an art professor? It's about an art professor that, that may be a conflation of, uh, of a very famous painter and professor at, at Kansas, but also another um, uh, art teacher he had uh, the year he was at Columbia. Uh, Cannell sketched, uh, did live model sketching for many years uh, and painted a little bit kind of a little lesser known aspect of his uh, his career. But anyway, so he's writing these novels. He's writing this book, this novel called The, uh, uh, the Anatomy Lesson, kind of out of that experience, and it's a failure. Uh, it just, it was going, he, he, Harper Brothers was looking at it for the same contest that uh, the Sexton uh, Fellowship that, um, that Max Steele had won, and uh, Cannell couldn't stop rewriting it, and it just fell apart. Except two, uh, two standalone chapters of that book. W one was his first publication in the Paris Review, and then one became the title story of, a, of his first book, a story collection called The Anatomy Lesson. Uh, some of those stories are based on Kansas, but um, Witt mentioned the uh, novel uh, called The Patriot, long forgotten uh, novel by Cannell. It came out a year after Mrs. Bridge. It was actually the, the book that should have been his first novel. It's everybody's first novel. It's, it's more autobiographical in a way than, uh, than the Bridge novels uh, because it's about, uh, it's about a young man who goes off to uh, train as a pilot during uh, World War II. Uh, leaves his family, and uh, it, there's, a, there's some aspects of it I think are just really fantastic, uh, incredible aviation scenes, uh, better than you'll read almost anywhere outside of uh, Saint-Exupéry. Uh, some incredible writing in this book. There's some great humor and satire in this book, but in general it's kind of a mess. 
uh, but it follows uh, this kid to um, you know through the through the Navy and then to to Kansas University of Kansas and you know art school and and a marriage and all this stuff playing out against uh, you know, the nuclear anxiety of the late 1950s. Anyway, it's not a very good book, um, but um, it's, you know, I found it uh, enlightening to finally go back and read. Funny thing, there were some, uh, the Kansas City Star excerpted uh, uh, several chapters of that huh. book as it was coming out, uh, but even they, uh, I write about this, uh, even, <clears throat> even they panned the book uh, to the extent I knew, I, late in life, I, I got to know uh, um, a uh, critic, literary critic named Webster Schott, who wrote about Cannell uh, for many years, for The Star, uh, for uh, The New Republic, uh, wrote about him in other places, and got to know him uh, fairly well over the years. And um, uh, Schott told me, and then I found the evidence of it, uh, he actually wrote a letter to Cannell's father to apologize for panning the novel, and he didn't want him to take it personally, but, you know, anyway. Uh, so it was not very well received, and, and then, uh, you know, Cannell's reputation became so odd, which is partly, um, you know, Mrs. Bridge did very well in 1959. It was a finalist for the National Book Award, and, you know, he became known um, even beyond his short stories. But um, then he started doing uh, stuff that was totally unexpected of a writer. You know, most publishing wants you to do the same thing over and over again. And instead, uh, what he did after the debacle of The Patriot, um, he was writing a... Um, uh, and if, what looks like an epic poem, um, it's a collection of uh, fragments of history and uh, personal observation and prophetic pronouncements. It's a fascinating book uh, called uh, Notes from a Bottle uh, Found on the Beach at Carmel. And Viking, uh, which published The Anatomy Lesson, which published um, uh, Mrs. Bridge, they decided that was a bridge too far, and that was uh, that book was kind of the last book that uh, Cannell published for uh, for Viking, and uh, you know, and then his next novel, uh, he had another short story collection at Simon and Schuster, and his next novel was called The Diary of a Rapist, uh, which was not exactly a uh, you know commercially. It's a fascinating book, uh, but it's a tough book to to approach and um, uh, anyway so he was so unpredictable it, it certainly it, it, uh, hurt his literary reputation so we've talked we're gonna we're gonna do questions and uh, questions in about very sh quickly so like in a couple minutes uh, so I wanted to get a quick answer from Henry and Paul and Steve on the on this question and then we'll I'm gonna give you at the audience a chance to ask some questions so I'm giving you an alert to think of your questions now instead of having the awkward silence period. Bring it on. So we've talked a lot about how these writers felt about Kansas City and St. Louis, but how did these cities feel about them? After all, their work is often quite critical, as we've discussed, of the social structures of their respective hometowns. Henry, does St. Louis think of Tennessee Williams as a favorite son? Or is your book meant to sort of correct St. Louis's uh, lack of awareness of Tennessee Williams' you know, connection to the city? Yes, it's, it's been uh, quite astonishing. Um, I think that this is changing. I should add that this is changing now. 
uh, with the Tennessee Williams Festival uh, now in its sixth year. But in the first years, I mean, in 2011, my book begins uh, with the awareness that in 2011 was the centennial of Williams' birth and things were being done all over the world and nothing here, absolutely nothing. And there was the kind of sense that, uh, I think a mean-spirited one, that, well, he hated it here, so why should we pay any attention to him? But I do think that that, is, that, that point of view is, is evolving. Um, so that's a short answer. I do want to mention, though, and, you know, nothing is brief when you're dealing with people like Steve and myself, I, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm shocked but, to discover. Um, yes. <laughs> but I, do, I did want to mention that um, Williams also wrote, actually, an, a lesson in anatomy. Uh, that was the first title for Summer and Smoke, was The Lesson in Anatomy. And a further connection, fascinating one in my opinion, is the fact that Williams also painted mm -hmm. and sketched. In mm -hmm. fact, my next large project is about Williams as a painter. So just to throw that in. That's cool. Thank I'll, you. I'll send you, uh, I'll send you the painting that, uh, uh, that I have of, uh, by Connell. I'll, I'll send, send you the image. Now this, the answer about how Kansas City feels about Canal, I can definitely, I mean, I, yeah. we can, I know Kansas City likes Canal quite a bit, actually, I feel like. Well, I think part of it is just the literary affinity to somebody who may or may not have been famous. I don't think most people in Kansas City probably have read Mrs. Bridge. A lot of people have read Mrs. Bridge. Yes. But they didn't really keep up with him as a, as a writer. I mean, the, the newspaper paid attention to almost every book. Uh, but that didn't necessarily uh, necessarily translate into this, you know, popular acclaim. The biggest uh, connection was in 1989, when Merchant Ivory, the film production company, came to town, uh, spent ten weeks uh, making Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, uh, which some of you may have seen, a lovely movie, um, and it, it was, you know, a Hollywood event in Kansas City. Everybody I know worked on that movie. I was at the newspaper. I was the arts editor at the time, and so I was uh, deeply involved in the coverage of that. Bob Butler, who was our uh, great uh, movie critic, it was, you know, was on the set a lot and interviewed Paul Newman, and, you know, we had Newman and Woodward sightings all over town. Uh, everybody was just kind of geared up for this movie. It was a big, you know, social benefit event uh, when, when the movie was premiered in Kansas City a year or so later. Um, so there was a there was a little bit of a hometown pride in that. Maybe not quite so much pride as uh, we now feel for uh, oh what's his name uh, the Ted Lasso uh, actor uh, who's from Kansas City. They they tend to Jason Sudeikis. Yeah, Jason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, he's got a much more of a higher profile than well. Than it's Ken I mean, it's, there's a sort of like well, somebody's <laughs> noticing us feeling to that. I think yeah, yeah. even though the Mrs. Bridges that Mr. And Mrs. Bridges is a movie that's like it's it's a book. There are books that criticize Kansas City. The Kansas City sort of skip that part and think like. Well, yeah. someone's noticing us, yeah. but we're, even if it's bad for bad things, we don't care. Yeah, there's not um, a law. Uh, I mean, Whitney. Uh, had, uh, we feel uh, that about people in St. Louis. Like, yeah. would you just <laughs> notice us, please? Come on. <laughs> Whitney has uh, famously written about Kansas City. You know, there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of literature. My books are critical about Kansas City, and yeah. people pretend that they're not. So yeah, yeah, good. yeah, yeah. So he's felt the same thing. I'm sure that Cannell uh, Cannell has, but. So, uh, questions from the audience. This is our time for you. I'll give you a couple seconds and then I'll ask another one. Yes. 
You've talked a lot about, obviously, the relationships with the mother. Hmm. What, if anything, did your research expose about their writing about their relationship or lack of relationship with the father? I'm going to repeat the question because they asked me to do that, so it'll be on the recording. We had a question about saying, we've talked about the mothers. What were, what were these writers' relationships with their fathers like? So uh, let's hear it. Well, I, I, if you don't mind, Henry, I'll go ahead and jump in. Um, uh, you know, Hen, uh, 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 Cannell had a, you know, a distant relationship with his father. Uh, he did kind of irritate his father when he decided he wasn't going to be a doctor and follow in his footsteps. And he probably irritated his father when he decided he was, he, he was trying to decide between becoming an artist and a writer. Um, it's a little, I got conflicting evidence of whether uh, his father actually ever read either of the novels, Mrs. Bridge or Mr. Bridge, or kept up with his, uh, you know, at some point uh, he was interviewed and did say he read it. Uh, his daughter, um, I'm sorry, um, uh, Cannell's niece, uh, Janet, thinks that he didn't actually read it. Uh, read Mr. Bridge. So it's it's a little hard to tell. Um, There's a late mention of his father in an interview. It was very curious where uh, Cannell says that his father always felt a little guilty about uh, his wife Elton's um, uh, cancer. He felt a little responsible for it because they had had a car accident in the 40s sometime and in that accident, uh, she was hit in the breast that later became cancerous some years later. And so I don't know how Cannell knew that his father had this guilt trip about his wife's cancer and death because they didn't talk about stuff like that. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I uncovered a few things that I thought were rather interesting. I mentioned the niece Janet. Janet in the early 70s joined when she was 18 or so joined a you know kind of a, a religious commune um, and her her uh, grandfather um, disowned her and actually wrote her out of the will I, I found the will and 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 then two weeks before he died he brought her back into the will he, he, he added a codicil that brought her back in uh, so he was he was a bit of a tyrant um, and, and, and there's more there that I didn't end up writing about, but uh, he just was not a, a, apparently a pleasant man, and I've heard that from uh, some other people who, whose family went to him. He was an eye doctor. He was an eye doctor to, you know, Upper Crest, Kansas City. He was very well known, but he was, was not a pleasant guy, best as I could tell. Thanks. Henry? You want to talk yes, about there's, there's a lot to say about the relationship between Williams and his father. I already alluded to the fact that his father, his father was a bully at home and uh, bullied both children, both Rose and he. Uh, the only one that he had a connection with was the younger child, Dakin, who was relatively, seemed relatively normal. If you want to read about um, Williams' attitude toward his father, I would recommend looking at the short story, The Man in the Overstuffed Chair, which is a, a, a memoir piece. Um, what is fascinating is that although he and his father could not speak to one another, he could not be open and his, he was afraid of his father. Um, as his life went on, he started to identify with his father. And in some ways he saw his father as a kind of kindred spirit who was also imprisoned by this 
asexual puritanical wife. And so that's, in fact, um, the play he wrote at University of Missouri, Hot Milk at Three in the Morning, is a portrait of his father as a man who wants to leave and is, is entrapped by his mother, uh, by his, his wife, excuse me. Uh, so that's fascinating. And if you look at the father figure in The Glass Menagerie, more famous reference, uh, you know, notice that the father is absent. He's a t telephone man who fell in love with long distance. But um, so he's not present in the family the way, he, in fact, Cornelius was in William's own family at that time. But it's fascinating to notice that he says at the end of the play, he follows in his father's footsteps in leaving St. Louis. So he saw in his father, although he despised him and, so, and feared him, something uh, of a picture that he wanted to emulate. The other reference to his father that is absolutely fascinating and it really hasn't been noticed is the fact that his father brought a kind of physical violence into the home. Um, Cornelius C.C. Uh, Williams famously had his ear bitten off in a poker night fight. Mm. And if any of you have seen or read uh, or watched the film of Streetcar Named Desire, probably the most famous scene in the play is the poker night where uh, Stanley Kowalski erupts and throws the small white radio out of the window. Um, my contention, and I think that there's strong evidence for that, is that Williams saw this kind of physical violence in the home and transposed it into his theatrical world through Stanley Kowalski. Um, and I think that, that so there's, um, there's a very strong presence of the father uh, as a toxic image of masculinity, uh, something to be feared and hated, but also in a curious way, something to be admired. Um, not this doesn't make rational sense, but neither does the way that the mind works. I think emotionally, he wanted to connect with his father very, very deeply. And he did um, in his work. Another just brief point is that oddly enough, the, the marriage, the toxic marriage between Edwina and C.C. Williams uh, connected and it was Glass Menagerie's success Williams gave uh, his mother half the royalties for the glass menagerie, which allowed her to have the financial independence to throw him out of the house. Hmm. So stop there. I'd, I'd like to go back to this point just a second because it, it, I, the, the thing I left out, uh, uh, Cannell's father, also named Evan Cannell, um, was not the bully that William's father was, but uh, he was the character that you, if you've seen Mr. and Mrs. Bridge the movie and the scene of the tornado coming down on the country club um, and, and everybody running to the basement except for he and he makes his wife sit there while he eats his steak, that, you know, that very well could have been uh, Cannell's uh, father. But um, Cannell, in middle age, um, and while his father was still alive, did sort of uh, hint or express the fact that he feared maybe a, that he was becoming a little like his father um, in uh, aspects of, you know, things that were important to him were loyalty and, uh, and uprightness and... Uh, 
and investing uh, for your family. And, and Cannell became an investor and writes, you know, talks about, it, you know, his Occidental Petroleum stock and other things that he was doing. But uh, Cannell wrestles, I think, with that persona and this kind of on multiple levels, as I write in this book, um, partly through Mr. Bridge, but mainly through a character named Mulebach, who appears in several short stories and, um, and two novels. Um, uh, Mulebach is a character who kind of is in a, a fit of sort of male anxiety, and his, his wife has died, and he has two kids, and there's, there's a lot of um, uh, fathers and sons um, in, in those stories. And so he, he wrestled with that. Uh, identity. Here we go. What's your question? So, uh, quickly, uh, I'm a St. Louis boy, married a Kansas City girl. When Mr. and Mrs. Briggs' movie came out, she found it, she barely made it through the movie, and uh, I read the novel Mrs. Bridge a couple of years ago, and when she, so my wife saw it on the d table, she's like, put that away. It, it, it cut too close to her. I wondered if that, yeah. So, which to me is a real compliment to the writer. Mm -hmm. But I'm just wondering, uh, for, for the two of you, um, well, what it is about these two authors that you want to devote, you know, a significant amount of your time and effort uh, telling their stories. I just, what, what is, what, what, you know, where, where's the connection for you? I'm going to repeat the question just in case I'm supposed to do that. Uh, the, the questioner has made some private observations about his marriage and then uh, would like to know why Steve and Henry were interested in these particular writers. Uh, mine was, uh, I was finishing a book on Hemingway and I was casting around for another project. I had had some connection to Cannell. I'd only spoken with him on the phone once. I had assigned somebody else to do a profile of him. I'd read some of his stuff, not, not a lot, but I was looking for another project and I realized no one had written, he died, I, actually, I wrote his, his obituary when he died in 2013 um, for the star. And uh, so he sort of floated up out of my consciousness one morning and uh, oh, that's it. So I got in touch with family, uh, you know, family member I knew and his, his longtime editor and I started, uh, you know, I went to Stanford to read his papers and it just snowballed. Uh, it, 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 for me, unlike for Henry, who's an academic and is very focused on the stuff he does, I, I kind of reckless, after I retired from the newspaper business, I, I recklessly go from one project to another and uh, I, I spent almost five years on, on Canel. It's a good question. Why? Um, I don't know. I'm pretty happy the way it turned out and uh, getting some good rewards uh, for it. Henry? Um, yes. Uh, although I'm an academic, I also move recklessly from project to project, too. And actually, in some ways, I mean, I've been drawn to Williams for better part of, of 40 years. I directed Glass Menagerie. I'm director as well. I directed Glass Menagerie in Holland in the 80s. And um, I just, in the course of time, uh, I realized that my life in some ways is a kind of odd inversion of Tennessee's. I'm a native New Yorker uh, who married a St. Louis girl, came to St. Louis and found that how much I loved St. Louis. Um, Williams is a St. Louisan in some ways who hates it, but leaves for New York. I also discovered during the research for the book that I actually lived several floors down from Tennessee Williams 
at 15 West 72nd Street, um, where my mother lived while I was in high school. So there were so many connections between he and I. I worked with Dakin Williams on, a, on the festival that we had here in 2004-05. But the most interesting thing was the fact that um, I told you I directed this production in, in St. Louis, in, in the Netherlands. Our costume designer came to visit and she said she wanted to go to the History Museum and find out uh, where the book was about Tennessee Williams in St. Louis. My wife took her there and um, there was none. And she came back from the visit and said, Henry, you have to write this. And, you know, I, I said, well, of course, there must be a book on Tennessee Williams in St. Louis. There's so many books on Williams. And I found out there were none. And in some ways, it was that accident that propelled me into doing this, this project. Mm. But during the course of the research, I realized that there were a lot of connections, personal connections that I have with him uh, in terms of growing up. Uh, that made uh, made it make sense. So thank you for that question. It's a very in, uh, insightful yeah, one, yeah, I, and uh, I, I think like, it's an interesting one. I'd like to add two or three really important points uh, after after that. My personal connection. Um, so uh, other than the fact that as as the more I researched and and learned about Canal, the more I realized, uh, yeah, we have some things you know in common including, you know, my social ineptness and, you know, and that kind of thing. But no, um, I, uh, I had, we had friends who owned uh, his boyhood home uh, back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s and used to have literary parties in his boyhood home uh, about a mile away from where I live now. Uh, yes. So I had that kind of personal uh, connection as well. And then as I was rereading, I reread uh, Son of the Morning Star, which I hadn't mentioned yet, and uh, my my bad. Uh, Cannell's most important, uh, most commercially successful book was a history, uh, a looping, incredibly beautiful narrative, non-linear narrative about the Indian Wars and Custer's demise at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And I just thought it was fascinating, kind of 180 degrees opposite of the gem like Mrs. Bridge, and I, I thought, here's a writer who does these really different things and is successful at both of them, and I was just kind of impressed by his range and uh, passion for you know doing stuff, some of which was not very commercially successful. You know, after the great success of of um, of Son of the Morning Star, the novel he works on is channeling the voices of medieval alchemists called the Al Alchemist Journal, and it's in this beautifully obscure and musical language of medieval scientists and philosophers and uh, hardly anybody read it but it's it's really kind of worth reading it's funny and it's it's fascinating uh, uh, but it was a you know a commercial not 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 what you'd call a commercial book so I was just fascinating by his range and I, I mentioned webs uh, one once one more second I mentioned Webster shot earlier uh, and in um, in Cannell's papers, I found a letter. Um, one of one of Cannell's last books was another big narrative about the Crusades, called Deus Lovolt. Um, it came out in 2000, just on the verge of of 2001, 9/11. But Schott wrote to uh, to Cannell, 
who had dedicated that book to Webster Schott and his wife, and said, you know, someday somebody's going to figure out how to make the connection between Mrs. Bridge and, and these other worlds that you write about. And I came across that letter in the archives and, and going, yes, that's what I'm doing. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, I think, first of all, no, no one who has heard Steve today would think that he's socially inept. <laughs> Nobody would believe that. But most importantly, I think... The thing that connects these two writers is that both of them refused to be pigeonholed. Mm. Both of them suffered from critics trying to make them rewrite their early successes, and they refused. Uh, and I think that that is a fascinating aspect. We didn't talk about, yeah. you know, I've, I've referred to Glass Menagerie and, and, and Streetcar Named Desire, but those were done, you know, by the end of the, the 1940s. And Williams went on and also had what I think uh, Steve is suggesting about Cannell, and that is this odd relationship with the public and with the critics who really didn't like his later works. In the case of Tennessee Williams, he never had a popular success after 1961, mm -hmm. after Night of the Iguana, and he continued to write obsessively for the next 20-plus years. So it's interesting how both of these writers on one hand achieved success, but in a way turned away from that success to try to do other things. However, you know, but not being really understood by critics or public. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, we're gonna say, we're gonna shut it down here because I have to do a, this event, an event here in about 10 minutes on this oh same stage. Thank you very much, Henry and Steve. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, the audience, for being here. Really, thank you very much. Thank you, Henry. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much, and I enjoyed. Thank you, Whitney, for the wonderful moderation. My pleasure. Uh, nice to meet you. Discussion job. and Steve, it's a pleasure getting to know you. Same here. I really appreciate it. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. We want to thank the Unbound Book Festival for hosting this discussion. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please, yes, we are going to ask that you go give us a rating on and review on Apple Podcasts. It's stupid, but it does help us. Um, you can listen and find previous episodes and read excerpts from interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, at, at FNF Pod on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fiction at fnfpodcast.net. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading.